Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They take care of our air conditioning and do a great job. You can find out more. Give them a call. Johnson'sAirConditioning.com is the website. Also, by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date. By reading Life in Naples, the website is LifeInNaples.net. We have great guests for today's show, including Bob Levy, constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. Andrew Jopp is a professor and author of a great read. It's called Josephus of Oz. We'll be visit with Andy. And Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture and author of several books, his latest, What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. It is October the 5th, and on this day in 1961, President John F. Kennedy, speaking on civil defense, advised American families to build bomb shelters to protect them from atomic fallout in the event of a nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union. Kennedy also assured the public that the U.S. civil defense program would soon begin providing such protection on every American. Only one year later, true to Kennedy's fears, the world hovered on the brink of full-scale nuclear war when the Cuban Missile Crisis erupted over the USSR's placement of nuclear missiles in Cuba. During the tense 13-day crisis, some Americans prepared for nuclear war by buying up canned goods and completing last-minute work on their backyard bomb shelters. That's what we're going through. Can you, as a kid, I remember getting under my desk. The siren would go off, and we are going to have a, a bomb, nuclear bomb threat drill, and we'd get under our desk as if that would do something to protect us. But nevertheless, it began the whole period of uh, the psyche of uh, the threat of a nuclear war. In fact, all of our psyches, as has terrorism during uh, this latest era. Well, after National School Board Association called on the Biden administration to take action against unruly parents who keep showing up at school board meetings, the Department of Justice under Attorney General Merrick Garland has taken up the cause against parents. If you can believe this, the NSBA encouraged the Biden administration to classify these actions of concerned parents as the equivalent to a form of domestic terrorism and hate crimes. A letter from the NSBA was sent to the President Biden last week. Americans, public school, and its education leaders are under immediate threat, the letter read, saying that the NSBA respectfully asked for the federal law enforcement and other assistance to deal with the growing number of threats and violence and acts of intimidation occurring across the nation. Can you imagine the threat of these parents concerned about their kids? in a closed room with school board members? Oh, what are they going to think of next? The letter from the NSBA cites incidents of impassioned parents who have become aggressive at school board meetings, writing that these, uh, 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 as these acts of malice, violence, and threats against public school officials have increased, the classification of these heinous, heinous acts could be the equivalent of a form of domestic terrorism and hate crimes. As such, it continues... NSBA requests a joint expedited review of the U.S. Departments of Justice, Education, and Homeland Security, along with appropriate training, coordination, investigations, and enforcement mechanisms from the FBI, including any technical assistance necessary from and state and local coordination with its National Security Branch and Counterterrorism Division, as well as any other federal agency with relevant jurisdictional authority and oversight. Garland's DOJ, which has stated that a primary concern of his domestic extremism, wrote that the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's offices will be meet, <clears throat> meeting during the next month with law enforcement leaders across the country to discuss strategies for addressing this disturbing trend, wrote Garland. Threats against public servants are not only illegal, they are run counter to our nation's core values, Garland said as part of the announcement. Those who dedicate their time and energy to ensuring that our children receive a proper education in a safe environment, deserve to be able to do their work without fear for their safety. And, of course, the operative word here is, of course, a core value, education, proper education. Well, Garland, this is what they're complaining about, for crying out loud. They don't like what their kids are being taught. Pay attention. Garland didn't mention the number of incidents across the country of school boards and school administrators who have not paid any attention to parents' concerns, either about critical race and gender theory or as regards 
the COVID-inspired restrictions that have closed schools and isolated students and stifled the education of a generation of American students. Justice Department will launch a series of additional efforts in the coming days designed to address the rise in criminal conduct directed towards school personnel, the DOG said. And no efforts could be complete without the creation of a task force. These task forces will have members from the Department's Criminal Division, National Security Division, Criminal Rights Division, the Executive Office for the U.S. Attorneys, the FBI, the Community Relations Service, and the Office of Justice Programs that will be used to determine how federal enforcement tools can be used to prosecute these crimes and ways to assist. Law enforcement is holding parents who want to stay, stay in their school children's education in the face of recalcitrant school boards to account. There will also be specialized training and guidance for local school boards and local school administrators so that school boards and other potential victims can understand the type of behavior that constitutes threats and how to report threatening conduct to appropriate law enforcement agencies and how to capture and preserve evidence of threatening conduct to aid in the uh, investigation and prosecution of these crimes. The DOJ offered a phone number where people can report threats of violence against school board members, officials, and workers in our nation's public schools. It's an unbelievable story. Now, once do they mention here, why don't we form a task force, see if we can't get some parents together and discuss what their concerns are. Maybe we can diffuse this whole thing by, guess what, dialogue and talking with one another. But immediately they classify these actions of concerned parents as extremists and uh, domestic terrorism. What's the world becoming? <laughs> this is just an unbelievable story. I can't believe it. I hope... Well, I wonder if you're as shocked as I am. I'm certainly shocked that uh, this could actually occur. Well, CNBC host confronted Dr. Anthony Fauci recently about the frequency of so-called breakthrough COVID-19 cases in people who are fully vaccinated. Good question. Public health officials have been touting the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccines for nearly a year now. And for good reason, the vaccines are more effective than first believed, especially considering scientists developed the vaccine less than one year after sequencing COVID-19's genetic code. But with governments pushing vaccine mandates, breakthrough cases in which fully vaccinated people contract COVID-19 seem to be increasingly frequent. So that begs the question, how can you force people to get vaccinated if a significant number of people who are contracting COVID despite being fully vaccinated? How can that be? The exact number of breakthrough cases, in fact, is not even known, or at least not to the public, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention stopped tracking this data in May. The agency has continued, however, to trans track hospitalizations and deaths among the fully vaccinated crowd. As of September 27th, the CDC reported 22,115 patients with COVID-19 vaccine breakthrough infection who were hospitalized or died. That's a lot of folks, perhaps not as a high percentage, but it's a lot of folks who've died or been hospitalized. During an interview of Closing Bell Friday, Sarah ho host uh, Sarah Eisen confronted Fauci about the breakthrough cases, asking if him if the government is being too casual about the limitations of the vaccine. Eisen was being uh, asking because she contracted COVID-19 despite being fully vaccinated. She said the virus had recently spread through her entire family. Yeah, so I'd be concerned if I were if I were in her position. In response, Fison, uh, Fauci cited. That, this, uh, that say vac unvaccinated people still remain most vulnerable to hospitalization or death from COVID-19, and the vaccination protects most people from a severe outcome if they contract COVID-19. Fauci told Eisen she should not confuse the overwhelming benefit of the protection of vaccines with occurrences of breakthrough cases. So he kind of sidestepped uh, the issue, but Where's the proof, actually, that uh, their cases are milder if you have the vaccine? I haven't seen that yet. But Eisen pushed back, noting the CDC no longer tracks breakthrough cases. Eisen's asked Fauci directly, how do you know that breakthrough cases are happening to a small proportion, and how do we know that they are tending to be mild? That's a great question. Fauci, however, did not directly answer the question, instead promoted booster shots before contracting contradicting what the SVD, CDC has said about how readily vaccinated people transmit COVID-19. So, in answer to your very appropriate question about if you get vaccinated, you're infected, is there uh, less of a chance you're transmitting it to someone who is uh, unvaccinated or someone who is vulnerable? The chances of doing that are diminished 
by uh, being vaccinated and even further diminished according to preliminary data. We'll see, wait to see if the real fundamental core of the data, but it, it looks like the extra added protection from the boost will be very valuable. Well, the CDC co contradicts that. They said that uh, <clears throat> the vaccination uh, uh, strength has diminished after being fully vaccinated. In fact, the CDC said that fully vaccinated people can transmit the virus as readily as unvaccinated people. Uh, current CDC information s states that the viral load of the data Delta variant is similar for vaccinated and unvaccinated folks. So again, Dr. Fauci lying and sidestepping the issues. Why are they promoting? Why they seemed all the evidence and all the information they're lining up seems to be politicized as opposed to sharing honest facts with the American people. No wonder there's so little trust with government agencies. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabee's.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. You can get tickets now by visiting the website, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Professor Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. Bob's an author. He's also a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Good to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., and focused on private property, free markets, securing individual rights, and limited government, C-A-T-O dot O-R-G, on the web. Thank you, Bob. So uh, the issue of equality, equity, inequality has uh, been in the news a lot lately. And I thought it would be an interesting topic to discuss from a policy and uh, uh, perspective of the Cato Institute. So liberal politicians have berated increased inequality. What does the data show? 
Well, the data, frankly, are mixed. It, it a lot depends on what time period you look at. <clears throat> it varies whether you look at income disparities or wealth disparities. For example, the Federal Reserve has adopted policies that have increased stock wealth but have reduced bond income. Of course, it matters whether you look at this on a per-person basis or on a household basis because there are many more working moms now than in past decades. Pre-tax versus post-tax makes a difference because our rates are deeply progressive. And most important, it matters whether you look at this before transfer payments or after transfer payments. Right. You know, during the the big financial crisis, uh, the total income of the top 1% um, fell by more than 30%, according to IRS. During the same period, the average income of the bottom 90% fell by less than 3%. So the paradox is this. Equality improves during recessions because the wealthy take more risks and they rely more heavily on investments, and they lose the most. Yet, uh, there's nobody who's advocating economic decline as a means of addressing uh, inequality. But we should expect income gaps to grow as the economy grows. I might challenge the issue about whether there's, there's nobody challenging, uh, wanting economic, uh, not wanting economic growth. But we'll have, that's another show, another time. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it seems counterintuitive. Right <laughs> it seems counterintuitive to argue that economic growth tends to uh, greater inequality. Could you explain? Well, it's just arithmetic. You know, equal percentage gains will increase the class disparity. Compare a guy who's making five dollars an hour with a guy making $1,000 an hour. That's a $995 an hour difference. So suppose the economy grows 20%, the $5 becomes $6, and the $1,000 becomes 1200 And now you're up to, instead of $995 difference, you're up to almost a $1,200 uh, difference. But, you know, bear in mind, and to paraphrase uh, Churchill, the inherent vice of capitalism is the unequal sharing of its blessings the inherent vice of socialism is the equal sharing of its misery. So we can expect disparities to grow as the economy grows. That still is a good thing. Yeah, although I point out that in the last administration, we're seeing the incomes of people on the lower scale actually growing much faster than incomes of uh, others uh, who might be running the business. So uh, it's not always that way. So what are the arguments, yes, what are the arguments against government re redistributing income? Well, one argument is that income classes are mobile. Uh, you know, Federal Reserve study found that about a third of the wealthiest, 1% in the, before the, the, the great financial crisis were no longer in the top 1% afterwards. And any American earning more than $34,000 a year is in the world's top 1%. So, you know, if we're really concerned about it, income equality, even the poorest Americans should be sending their money uh, overseas to the yeah. less fortunate. And then third, and I think most important, the, the top 1% of earners supply a, almost 40% of the income tax revenue. The top 10% supply about 70%. Meanwhile, the bottom half of earners only supply 3%, and about 60% of households uh, either pay no income tax or less than 5% of their income. So one wonders just how progressive the rates have to be uh, to satisfy this notion of a fair, uh, fair society. And, and when it comes to corporate taxes, uh, the, uh, the conventional wisdom that you raise corporate taxes and that helps the middle class, that's just not the case. Corporations don't pay taxes. Basically, they collect taxes. And the taxes are then paid partly by the shareholders, which, by the way, tend to be pension funds and mutual funds. So ultimately, it's us as individuals. Or it's paid by the employees in lower wages. Or it's paid by the customers in lower prices. The corporations are just a funnel through which the taxes flow. Yeah, absolutely. So for those who think we're going to sock it to the to the uh, corporation, they just—it's just an add-on to uh, the cost of goods and services. Right. So, uh, what is your reaction to Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax? Well, my first reaction is it's unconstitutional. Hmm. You know, there's there's three kinds of taxes 
uh, at the federal level, there's the income tax, which is expressly covered <clears throat> by the 16th Amendment. There are what called indirect taxes, and these are tra- taxes on transactions like sales or events uh, like you die. Uh, and those taxes, the constitutional rule is they have to be uniform across the country. Mm-hmm. So you can't have one uh, estate tax rate, federal estate tax rate in Virginia and a different one in Florida. Um, and then the third type of tax is a direct tax. These are taxes directly on a per-person basis or taxes on property. A wealth tax would be a direct tax. And the answer there is, according to the Constitution, they have to be apportioned by population. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that would not be possible. You could not apportion a wealth tax in this country uh, by population. Uh, the proponents, of course, would likely try to craft some kind of wealth-based provisions to affect the income tax, either the amount of the tax or the rate of income that's imposed based on uh, your wealth. But then you also have the problem of valuations. we got all kinds of illiquid assets like art, like uh, private uh, holdings, and one wonders what the scope of this is. Does it cover the present value of your pension fund? Does it cover your Social Security benefits? How about Medicare and Medicaid? That represents income transferred from some people to other people. And bear in mind that there's a triple counting involved here. First, there are taxes at the corporate level. Then when those taxes, when those profits are distributed, they're either taxed at income or capital gains. And then finally, we're talking about this third tax, a wealth tax. Hmm. Sweden, Denmark, Finland, Norway, the Netherlands, they all tried wealth taxes. They were all, except for Norway, abandoned because of implementation problems. So it's a horrible idea, and by the way, unconstitutional. Thank you, Bob. So isn't it the case that we're already distributing income? You bet. Uh, Consider the effects of transfer payments. The middle quintile, that is what we ordinarily might call the middle class, had income in a recent year between $50,000 and $80,000 on average. They paid about $7,400 in taxes, but they received 16500 in transfer payments. Wow. So they had an after-tax income after these transfer payments of $59,000. That implies an effective rate of a negative 13.7%. And the comparable rates for the lowest and the second lowest quintiles were negative 35% and negative 27.6%. It's not until you get to the fourth quintile the next to the highest quintile, that you have a positive uh, rate. And it's only the highest quintile that pays meaningful taxes, about plus 18.9%, and that is net of transfer payments. And you you may have seen the article by Phil Graham, the former Texas senator, uh, recent in the Wall Street Journal. He reported on the federal, state, and local taxes as a percentage of the income and transfers received. The bottom quintile, 5.1%. The top 1% of taxpayers, 39.6%. The top one-tenth percent, 45%. The OECD reports that the U.S. has the most progressive taxes in the world. Wow. The top 10% of our taxpayers pays 45% of all income, Social Security, and Medicare taxes versus about 28% in France, for example, and 27% in what is perceived as socialist Sweden. So we already have transfers taking place. That is fascinating information. Certainly not well publicized, Bob. Hey, I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. I'd like to pick up the conversation where we left off on inequality uh, next week, Bob. Thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you so much. And again, the website, cato.org, C-A-T-O. Org. All right, coming up with a visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josefa Savaz, that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Luke Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Luke Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate courtyard garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean dining room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on the board. And among their initiatives are creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting the website, vfga.org. Coming up, I'm going to visit with Professor Larry Bell. Right now, we have with us Professor Andrew Joppa, author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. So, uh, starting off with some good news, I suppose you saw the, uh, the Red Sox beat the Yankees last night. Well, you know, that's sort of a sick comment you just made, but I'll tolerate that <laughs> you're my friend. But you don't have many, much more slack after that, Bob. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been waiting 43, game, 43 years for a one-game playoff, and it would talk about an anticlimactic moment. So, But it was better. Three hours of invested time away from America's dilemma was probably a healthy thing to go through. That's a great point, Andy. Now, just a little background here. Andy and I are great friends, but of course, uh, Andy's a Yankees fan, and I'm uh, having lived 10 years in Boston, uh, Boston Red Sox fan. So, in any yeah, well, event. Don't, don't, don't push that friendship thing. It's <laughs> on thin ice right now. <laughs> All right, Andy. So, what's top of mind for you today? Well, first of all, let me let me do something serious. Let me send out my prayers to Casey DeSantis, who yeah. has been diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, her and Ron have three kids. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, obviously a, a strain on their family that's enormous. And for the governor, uh, with all he's going through, holding Florida together, other under other under great pressure. Uh, so I, I really uh, send that family my my best wishes and and hope that they they all come through this okay. And uh, so I. I think all Floridians, regardless of their political persuasion, should be uh, sending those kind of prayers out to the DeSantis family. Bob. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, it, uh, devastating news for the family, I'm sure. You know, and I, uh, he, he as governor, I guess he has this obligation to share the, that information. But think how private a, an issue that can be. And uh, I also have empathy for the fact that it's all happening in public. Yeah, it's it's a difficult situation, even if it is in private. But certainly, as a as a publicly disclosed phenomenon, I think it uh, it adds additional weight because the press certainly will will ask about it, and it, it just uh, adds to the burden. But the Ron DeSantis has proven to me over the last several years that th this is a man that that can handle almost any dilemma. But uh, I am concerned that depending on his wife's uh, circumstance, that. Uh, Things can overwhelm a man that's uh, of great love, as, as Ron DeSantis is for his wife. Uh, great point. Indeed, Andy. So I, I, I don't know if you've been paying attention at all to uh, 
uh, what's happening at the Department of Justice and attempts to intimidate parents in their <coughs> relationships to their children. It's just appalling to me. It's just outrageous that the parents are finally waking up to what's happening to kids in their schools. Now they're complaining about it and raising a fuss about it. And now the Department of Justice wants to classify them as terrorists. Well, that's a topic that's in my wheelhouse. Uh, I was deeply involved with uh, uh, public school uh, criticism back in the mid-90s. I will uh, venture to say that in the southern tier of New York State, I was the leading the leading activist uh, uh, complaining uh, about the problems of the public school system. I had made a presentation at Long Island to the Civic Action Council, and there was a riot. They had a call on the state police. So, yes, was I intimidating? Was I intimidating the, the school boards and the, the teachers' unions? Absolutely. What was that intimidation? The intimidation had to do with the quality of education. Mm. It had to do with the, uh, the expense. It had to do with the fact that uh, our students were not performing against international standards. In today's America, if you look at critical race theory being shoved down the throat of so many of our students with uh, gender identity issues being uh, presented as scientific uh, facts, uh, if we look at the, the whole notion of what's going on in the in the public schools, the outrage of the parents is certainly understandable. Uh, as far as Garland calling in the FBI uh, because the local police couldn't handle it, that suggests a problem of enormous uh, amplitude. There's no indication whatsoever. Now, I, I have no idea, but there may be a few isolated letters to uh, school board members uh, that are uh, perhaps... Uh, too aggressive, too intimidating, yes. But mostly what they're talking about is merely parents standing up at school board meetings right. and demanding accountability, demanding change, and in fact suggesting, yes, that they will vote these school board members out and they will demand changes in the system. But these are legitimate intimidations. These are the, the appropriate things that parents should do. And this is why parents are allowed to speak at school board meetings, to have Garland, the DOJ, Department of Justice, invoke the FBI as a, uh, as a, uh, a monitor, let's say, of this process with legal uh, ramifications against those parents. They're trying to figure out what crimes can be defined so many of these parents can be uh, incarcerated. Yeah. Now, that sounds un unduly um, uh, dramatic, but if we look at the post-January 6th incarceration over absolutely nothing except uh, misdemeanor trespassing, then the possibility of parents being uh, incarcerated for merely challenging their school boards, I think, is a, uh, at least a strong possibility, Bob. Uh, just uh, just consider the thought that Merrick Garland could have been one of our uh, justices on the Supreme Court. Can you imagine? Well, yes, he was being presented at the time of confirmation as a moderate. Uh, this man is as, is as moderate as Karl Marx would have been. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not saying he's a Marxist. I'm just saying he's, his positions have proven to be radical. I, I'm not sure what his personal opinions are, really, obviously. But what you know is he follows the party line, and he is absolutely responsive to the demands of the, of the political left. So if we look at what's going on in our schools, and we know within Marxist doctrine, the control of the public schools is one of the major elements in the ultimate takeover of the whole society. So I think we're seeing that in action right now yep. as the federal government is invoked as, a, as the intimidating force against parents pushing back against the, the, the school board's uh, actions and the teachers' unions' actions. If we look at the uh, National Association of School Boards, uh, they are, for all practical purposes, a, a Marxist organization, Bob. Yeah, well, it goes without saying. I mean, certainly the call for action there was simply dialogue. Why don't we get together and discuss the issues that are concerning parents? Why don't we try and see if we can understand this so we can provide some assurances that we're going to be moving in the right direction and, and assuage parents' parental concerns. Nothing like that is happening. In fact, they want to just shove it right down their throats, unfortunately, as proven by the uh, position of Merrick Garland of the DOJ. And, and where is the outrage? Once again, Bob, where is the outrage from the, uh, from the Republican Party? Where is their standing up and defending parents' rights to free speech in terms of what's happening to their children? Where, just where are they and yeah. why aren't they there? Now, at the state level, again, state level, there are Republicans that are pushing back. But at the federal level, the Republican Party seems to be, uh, you know, just a uh, absent from duty right now. Bob. Yeah, you know, I, I just uh, 
frankly, I, there's not an issue right now that has outraged me more than this. I just can't imagine that the federal government would be taking issue with parent, parents and their concern about protecting their children for the type of information they're being taught at school. Just can't. It's just unbelievable. Well, I mean, Garland is the define these parents as domestic terrorists. He really seems come very close to doing that. Uh, and this is uh, absolutely outrageous the way they invoke that term for anyone, yep. anyone that pushes back against leftist policies. And and if there is one uh, perhaps defining element of a fascistic government, it is that the government's use of power-based intimidation to suppress all dissenting voices. Yeah, well, as Biden says about COVID-19 and the vaccines, we're beginning to lose our patience. Hey, <laughs> you report to us, fellow. So, hey, uh, you... Uh, you... Wait, let, me, let me say something in regards to that. I have heard the number of the, uh, the number of cases, uh, uh, hospitalized cases right now. 25% of the COVID patients are vaccinated patients. Yeah. 25%. These aren't just a few outliers, you know, one or two percent or, you know, a few random numbers. 25% of the uh, of the people hospitalized right now have been vaccinated previously. Yeah. I heard a figure as high as 64% uh, of people that have been hospitalized uh, have uh, been vaccinated. But moving on, let's, uh, because <laughs> frankly, that's just a whole other issue. How about uh, what's happening in China with regard to its energy? Okay, I'm going to get to that, but let me just do something I wanted to do. Um, uh, the good news for today, I've been trying to get some good news in. Uh, Pitbull, who is a, a rapper, has in fact, uh, and a very, very popular rapper, I might add. I don't know much about him, but I know that's true. He has come out in absolute condemnation of anyone who, who uh, dislikes or rejects America. And he says, uh, th this is what he says, the reason I can have this conversation is because my family comes from communism. They fled communism. They had everything taken away from them. Everybody got murdered. Everybody got killed. That's the reason for me, being a first-generation Cuban-American, I look at freedom and I appreciate it. I appreciate that opportunity. Mm. I appreciate anything that you give me. So, I mean, I think those are good pieces of news when a, a fairly young man who has a, a huge following is willing to offer those kind of comments. So I think that is, that's, that's good news. Yeah. And one more thing before I get into the nation, I have a a friend listening up in Newark, New Jersey. He's uh, one of the finest men I know, one of the finest Americans I know. Uh, the amazing thing about this gentleman, and he is a gentleman, is he is a Ugandan national. He is one of the leading experts in sub-Saharan economic policy. He's just an incredibly fine man and an incredibly good American in terms of understanding this country and, and respecting the values of this country. So uh, I just wanted to give a shout out to him because he is he is listening this morning. Oh, so thank you. Uh, I thought that was worth doing. Yeah, I certainly is. And thank you for those comments. It is certainly is uh, worth doing. So now back to China and its energy problems. Well, the energy problem is creating worldwide shortages, and I think those are going to expand as, as time goes on. I, I try to uh, gain an understanding of exactly what was going on with that, and I, I think I have mastered that I, to, to the extent that that's, that's possible. In other words, what exactly has caused this, this energy crisis in, uh, in China? As best I can tell, of course, it starts with an overreaction to environmental concerns, uh, climate change concerns. With those climate change concerns, China uh, issued environmental regulations which considerably slowed down coal mining. Now, as the pandemic eased up, <clears throat> the demands in China increased dramatically. Mm -hmm. The coal availability couldn't keep up with that increased demand for usage. China looked abroad for coal. But at that time, the prices had gone sky high for coal. Uh, as the prices went sky high, the uh, energy producers in China have no ability to regulate their prices based on those increased price of prices of the supply. Hmm. Uh, so they, they cut back in their, in their outputs. Uh, many of the northern provinces of China have withheld their coal supplies, been debating a cold winter as in Manchuria, for example, so they've held back supplies. Uh, in addition, you have 20 of the 31 provinces in China that have not met their artificially imposed um, um, climate targets, and they have, in fact, also restricted their output, huh. cut back their output because of those things. So we have this whole process. Again, once more, an artificial creation 
unnecessarily occurring because of a response uh, to climate change that was totally unnecessary, totally, uh, uh, totally uncalled for. We can extend that to the, uh, the Chinese involvement with uh, African uh, energy supplies and, and the coal. Now, China has said they're going, not going to use coal-burning plants in China. With that waits to be seen. So we have this, this supply, uh, supply and demand situation. It is dramatically restricted worldwide supplies. And with China being the primary suppliers of so many products that go worldwide in their raw form, especially, I, I think this is a problem that uh, uh, it, it's hard to see how we will rectify over the, the short term, at least. Bob. So uh, my, my thoughts are the uh, certainly there's a problem of smog and uh, dirty air in uh, China. There's no question about that because we have the technology and we use it to uh, scrub the particulates out of the air so that energy is clean. Now, if my, the premise of my comments is carbon dioxide is not, not a problem. Carbon dioxide is something that's very helpful to our to to the globe in terms of uh, photosynthesis and helping us to uh, have a symbiotic relationship with the plant world but uh, so they have dirty air and they they need to clean it up but that's certainly got nothing to do with they what with uh, they simply need the technology to clean up their air and get rid of coal plants well i think you pointed out one of the misconceptions uh, held by the american people and, and perhaps worldwide that when we talk about clean air, that we're talking about carbon dioxide, and that is just not true, as you pointed out. I mean, there are uh, atmospheric contaminants that are that are dangerous, and China perhaps leads the world in those contaminants, right. particularly around Beijing. But those are not carbon dioxide issues. Right. Those are contaminants of an entirely different nature, and they should be controlled. Right. And, and again, as you alluded to, uh, if there was a serious effort that was going to be made to uh, to uh, decrease the the carbon output, I, I, presuming that's necessary, and I'm not, I have no view that that is true. Uh, certainly, they have to uh, figure out better ways to uh, to burn uh, coal. And by the way, we have to open up our natural gas supplies again because that has pushed England, the UK in general, into more consumption of coal. Uh, so we're looking at these uh, these domino effects. Many of them starting with the United States restrictions uh, on their natural gas output. Uh, so we're looking at a situation that is, uh, again, once again, artificially created. And in the minds of the public, unfortunately, they see uh, clean air as being in some way related to the reduction of carbon dioxide. Bob. Amazing. So are they having brownouts in China? Um, situationally, yes. Wow. Situationally. And uh, these, these brownouts are not necessarily caused by the lack of availability of energy per se, but the unwillingness of the energy companies to, uh, to produce that output uh, because of the pricing structure. They, uh, based on Chinese regulation, uh, these companies cannot accelerate their prices uh, as a factor of their increased price structure. So there are, there are these brownouts. Uh, there's a dramatic reduction in many supplies, for example, the cutbacks in in steel, the cutbacks in aluminum, uh, textiles, uh, and if we look at America's absolute re requirement to use the materials uh, of produced by China for our pharmaceutical industry, the implications are dramatic. We can we can already see this spreading worldwide. Mm -hmm. Now, whether this can be rectified while maintaining these uh, absurdly imposed environmental standards. That waits to be seen. I, I hope the world and China comes to its senses. It's renewable energy resources that China has made a serious dedication to implement uh, are lagging behind because the winds have not been blowing and and the rains have shut down many of their uh, many of their processes. So uh, these these uh, renewable energies are not producing the amount that is uh, needed. Certainly not needed. Uh, to keep up with China's uh, energy demand, and they seem to have an unwillingness to go back to uh, the coal burning. And even if they did, the price structure is so high right now uh, that they probably would not be willing to do it. Bob. You know, Andy, this is certainly a different take on my view of uh, the information I've had about China. My understanding and uh, my thought process, my narrative, if you will, is that China is producing all these uh, solar panels and sending them off around the world for people who want to feed their desire for green energy. In the meantime, they're burning coals and, and using typical and coal-based fuel in order to uh, fuel their economy. 
Well, that that's true. I mean, there has been a reduction, I believe, uh, from 70% of China's energy output by coal 10 years ago to 51% today. Uh, so there has been a dramatic reduction. Certainly that, that does not indicate that there is a uh, a, a, an absence of, of carbon-based output from coal-burning plants. And the number of coal-burning plants has once again uh, begun to increase. And if I get back to the African uh, circumstance, uh, I believe that coal-burning plants will be built in Africa. Yeah. And, and, and you, you highlighted, Bob, that one of the things that we should invest our science in uh, is, in fact, uh, figuring out ways to uh, to burn coal with a minimized uh, carbon footprint. Uh, certainly, uh, natural gas in itself would, would be probably the immediate answer. But if it's going to be coal, let's figure out a way to burn it in a manner that does not produce significant levels of carbon output, Bob. Absolutely. Andrew Joppa, again, Professor jo You know, we always run out of time before we run out of things to talk about because I've got another couple of things on my list I wanted to discuss with you. But, Andy, we're going to have to just wait until next week. I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show, and I want to recommend your, uh, your book, Josephus of Oz, a terrific read, off-topic for today's discussion, but really interesting, Josephus of Oz by Andrew Joppa. Andy, always appreciate your commentary. Thanks so much for joining us. And thank you for those comments, Bob. Absolutely, my pleasure. All right, coming up, Professor Larry Bell. That more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. You suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees. I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months, finally having exhausted all alternatives for pain management. Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America is now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, classical academies, and other schools of excellence serving kindergarten through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. A terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy opened this fall in a classical virtual school. Optima Classical Academy will open in 2022. Find out more by visiting OptimaEd.org. Help children in Florida optimize their education opportunities. Visit www.OptimaEd.org. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new refreshing social networking platform. You can download the app from the website, choicesocial.us, and I hope you'll do so. Right now we have with us Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. Uh, he's also the author of several books, his latest, What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Bob, it's always a pleasure to be on it. Thank you so much. My pleasure indeed, Professor. And also, I'll point out to our listeners that uh, you write a column on point for uh, Newsmax. You can find it at Newsmax.com. And your latest, Biden vaccine mandates provoke prickly scientific personal legal pushbacks. Very interesting. Maybe you could tell us about it. Yeah, I think we're all aware of uh, 
concerned about a lot of government overreach. And, of course, uh, when Biden ran for presidency, he uh, promised he wasn't going to be, I think there were two major promises, one that he wasn't going to be uh, Donald Trump and that he's going to crush the virus. And uh, I think the you know, the vaccines have been pretty marvelous uh, development, and uh, I refer to them as the Trump vaccines because I think a lot of the people that are pushing vaccines now in the Democrat Party don't give full appreciation to where those came from. Of course, they came from private industry, but mm-hmm. certainly Donald Trump expedited that. But the issue at hand is uh, when you start mandating them, and uh, this is the case now where executive order uh, uh, Biden has and his uh, his agenda have uh, made vaccines mandatory for government workers and even the military and uh, and then through OSHA companies that have a hundred or more individual employees are, are going to uh, have mandates applied as well as well as their contractors. This um, this doesn't recognize that for a lot of reasons. Uh, either have vaccines. I mean, either have uh, contacted the contracted the uh, COVID and they have immunity, which uh, presumably is is even a stronger uh, immunity than if you get with a vaccine. So. That's really over 100 million people that are already immune, even to a large extent than the vaccines, as well as people who have religious objections and and health objections. Uh, I'll just mention in my case, uh, I find I have a genetic uh, proclivity to have a reaction to 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 the vaccines. I found this out through experience with a family member. Uh, and so it's quite, I've had two vaccines, and I'm 83 years old, and I'm teaching my students. I very much enjoy being with them face-to-face, and I'm back to teaching again. But, you know, when it comes to the booster, I'm, I have some uh, apprehension about that because, because of potential clotting effect and so on. So there are, a lot of, there are a lot of reasons that people are resistant, but I think a key one is when you look at these broad mandates, and you look at the workforce, and we, of course we want to support gender rights and so on, but a lot of those, those mandated individuals, whether they're nurses or whether they're various government employees or working for a company, are, are uh, of an age, they're women who, who are potentially going to become pregnant. Mm-hmm. And and they're in, they're they're in an age that would make them less vulnerable to COVID, but basically this uh, there's a lot of evidence coming out right now that that the the shots are very experimental yet, mm-hmm. and the and the uh, amount of research has been done in terms of potential effects on 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 mothers and particularly the you know the unborn and breastfeeding mothers and so on is the jury's out so i think we're playing a very dangerous game you know i couldn't agree more and the evidence continues to show that uh, for example uh, the efficacy of the vaccines is very high after the first couple of months but apparently i read one study that suggests it goes down 83.7 percent from its uh, from its initial uh, efficacy uh, after about seven months and those that have had covid apparently they they uh uh, their resistance against getting COVID again is a, a multiple, many times multiple of what it is with the vaccine. So there's some good evidence that's just totally being ignored. I mean, they, at least they should be entertained and addressed, it seems to be, by the officials. But just, I think the the president has, in my opinion, very little personal power with the people. So he's using his position power to make all of his decisions and trying to force people to do things. And it's not going well. Well, that, I think that is true, and I think he's trying to find something that he can double down on that will work, and I think he 
he has a history of making some really terrible errors in judgment. But the one thing I'm concerned about particularly is with, you know, when, when you have what is essentially still an experimental um, uh, drug or treatment that you're putting in into young children. Yeah. It's untested, and we, and we, some of us are old enough to remember the thalidomide situation where you're mandating this mass, mass, mass uh, program of injection, and we don't know what the effects are going to be uh, a year from now, a decade from now, multiple decades from now in terms of impacts on, on generations, in terms of, you know, their health effects, their uh, impacts on their hearts and lungs and so on. So it's, it's, it's not a trivial game that we're playing. It's very, very terrifying. It is. And I think that uh, parents and, uh, you know, should, should have every right to, to uh, as, as well as others, to determine what they put in their bodies and what they put in their children's bodies and their would-be children's bodies. And, and this is, I, I think, nothing less than draconian. I agree, Professor, and it's a matter of balancing risk with reward. And uh, the uh, f- in, in most cases, people are saying, you know what, the risk of whatever is created by taking the vaccine is offset by the the uh, reward of being immunized uh, from the from the uh, virus. But for young kids, uh, I've read studies and and uh, articles at least that suggest that uh, the kids actually the risk reward ratio is exactly the opposite. The risk of harm is much greater than the reward of protection against the disease. I've read some of the same materials, and one of the things that's so frustrating is we can't we cannot trust the government anymore. Right, and that's just a reality. In almost everything, we're finding that information is being manipulated and. Even you know that we, we we can understand that within the with regard to the COVID virus and so on that that it's kind of a learn as you go sort of situation. So there, you know, we we update information, we learn more about it. But I think there's a fundamental distrust about just the honesty of what we're seeing, and 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 we any question whether you know the influence of of the pharmaceutical companies that are conducting the you know the you know the uh, research. And the test trials and so on, where where that information, because we're we're, we're seeing whistleblowers from Pfizer, for example, and so on, coming forth and saying, you know, don't don't do this, and uh, so it's a great deal of I think distrust and confusion regarding almost any information that we hear from the government, whether it's you know, we can spend trillions of dollars and it's not going to cost us a nickel, and and keep your doctor if, if you want it, and, and on and on and on. Uh, uh, it's it's very unfortunate that we cannot trust our public officials. Unfortunate indeed. <laughs> this is way off topic, but it just reminds me of the uh, video I saw of apparently the uh, president was up in Michigan. He was his cavalcade, his car cavalcade was driving along the lines or uh, Trump signs and. F. Biden and all kinds of signs <laughs> along the road. And he said, you know, I appreciate all the support that I'm getting from my 81 million voters that voted for me. <laughs> it's just total denial of exactly what's going on right now. He doesn't understand, or I think he does understand, but won't admit that to the people that uh, he doesn't have their support. Professor, so you By the way, Bob, yes. in terms of changing channels here, I'll mention my new book's coming out, uh, I think, before the end of the year. With Buzz Aldrin, we, we co-authored the book, and it's uh, Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the, the Space Frontier, and that it should be coming out, I think, uh, hopefully in a couple of months, so I'll have a firmer schedule uh, Oh, that's, Probably in a week or so. That's just very exciting news, Professor. That's, that is really interesting and, and great. So I look forward to a formal announcement on that. And I look forward to reading the book. I, just uh, just reminding our listeners of what a big role you've played in our space program in days past. It's just really incredible. Again, Professor Larry Bell, the book, uh, latest book is What Makes True Humans Truly Exceptional. Always appreciate your commentary here on the show, Professor. Thanks so much for joining us. Bob, thank you so much. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. We've got great guests for tomorrow, so please tune in. I uh, hope you'll, uh, if you have any comments about the show, send me an email at bobhardinathotmail.com, bobhardinathotmail.com. 
I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.